Hello and welcome everybody back to episode two of Saturdays are for the Byzantine podcast. Uh, I am your host. You can call me Professor Wren. Uh, that's not to suggest, and I'm not claiming that I am a college professor. I am not. Uh, however, were I teaching uh, a class like this at the college level, which you would have to basically take at the college level because uh, Byzantine history is really not taught at the secondary level, this, you know, that I'm aware of for really the only place where you can study Byzantine history is at the college level. So were I to teach this as a class, and that's kind of the format uh, that I'm going for here, you know, I would be you know, referred to as professor. So there you go. That's where the name comes from. Um, that being said, I kind of wanted to uh, just briefly go over sort of the format of this podcast. And basically, my my idea for it was that I would it's almost like going to be a lecture series. So as if as if you know you listening to this podcast um, might might be you know uh, if you were in college and you wanted to learn about Byzantine history, this is basically how you would learn about it. You would come to a class and you would listen to a bunch of lectures and a lot of the material that I'm that I've prepared for these for these uh, episodes have all a lot of the information has come from. Uh, the notes that I took for my Byzantine history classes. I took I took Byzantine civilization uh, basically from start to finish, uh, from the very beginning up until 1453, the fall of Constantinople. Um, and I was also I, I was what I was listening to a uh, Jordan Peterson lecture a little while ago, and uh, regard you know Jordan Peterson, fairly controversial figure, whatever you think about him. Uh, you can't deny that he's had incredible success um, doing a lot of these long-form like podcast lectures, discussions, etc. And it was interesting. What he said was that uh, peop- you know there really is this kind of this audience for a long-form lecture, uh, whether it's podcast videos, etc. And he said that it didn't even really. What he found when he started it was that it didn't necessarily matter if the video quality was good. What people really cared about was if the audio quality was good, and and that they there was still a market for these these kinds of uh, these kinds of shows, these kinds of lectures. So I mean, the the guy has like a, a whole th- you know lecture series on on the Book of Genesis, which you know each <laughs> each of these videos on YouTube is like three hours long, and they, they all have like a million views. So obviously the guy knows knows what he's talking about. Now I'm sure the audio files out here, if you've even managed to find this this video, this podcast, are saying, oh yeah, well you know the audio has to be good. Well, listen, I, I understand my audio quality is not amazing right now, but it's eventually it'll be upgraded. But anyways, I just wanted to kind of give you guys an idea of what I'm thinking about as I produce this this series. Basically, again, I'm I'm thinking of this kind of as a lecture series that I'm just putting out as a podcast. So we're going to be picking up with Constantine, and we're going to be kind of uh, going through the story of how Constantine rises through the ranks up to the point where he becomes one of the greatest Roman emperors of all time. So when we last left the story, I told you about how the reform told you about the reforms of Diocletian, how he splits the empire. It's called a tetrarchy. Tetra is a, um, it's just a Greek word, means four. So there's there's four rulers, right? There's an Augustus in the east, and there's an Augustus in the west. And then each of them has a, a junior emperor who rules with them, or maybe you would even call it the assistant to the regional manager, but those are called, the, the, the junior emperors are called Caesars, okay? So one of the most... No- 
excuse me. So Constantine was the son of uh, Constantius, and Constantius was the uh, Caesar or the junior emperor in the West under the Augustus Maximian. Now Constantine, like Diocletian before him, came from humble beginnings from uh, the area that we would now call the Balkans. Uh, this is an interesting uh, phenomenon in Roman history is that a lot of the uh, best soldiers in the Roman Empire came from uh, what we, the area that we would now call the Balkans, like Serbia, Croatia, um, Macedonia, uh, Slovenia, so on and so forth. And I think the reason for that that area of the Roman Empire was kind of known. It was kind of backwoods, kind of rural, kind of, you know, not not supremely, uh, 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 not not like the big cities type deal, right? And it's an inter this interesting phenomenon. Uh, you see it throughout history. Is that these kind of these kinds of rural, tough areas are breed really good soldiers? And kind of a comparable example to this would be if you've studied the Civil War history, right? The uh, the South initially in the Civil War had a big advantage because they had much better soldiers than like the city boys up north, right? When you're out fighting a war, kind of like running around fields through the country, uh, uh, camping essentially, and uh, and all these things, uh, a kind of a more rural upbringing better suits you for that kind of military than an urban upbringing does. Uh, really, the reason that the North triumphs in the end is not because they have better quality soldiers, but better quality uh, equipment, supply lines, uh, so on and so forth. But it's just an interesting uh, observation here, because as we'll see, Constantine also uh, uh, and his father rise through the ranks due to the military. <clears throat> you even see this as well with the Ottoman Empire regarding uh, the Byzantine region. They would practice, they had this practice known as Dev Shirm. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Dev Shimra? Shirma? Um, which would the uh, the Muslim Ottomans would kidnap uh, Christian boys in the Balkan provinces, bring them to Ankara, train them as Janissary soldiers, and convert them to Islam, and they become very successful, uh, uh, very good soldiers. Right. So this this area of the world that we're talking about is well known for producing a lot of good uh, soldiers. Anyway, while Constantine served as Caesar in the West or sorry, Constantius, his father, that's Constantine's father. As Constantius serves as Caesar in the West, Diocletian held Constantine as a hostage in the East, right? We talked about this earlier. This is done so that Constantius does not get any bright ideas about attacking Diocletian, because if he does, he knows his son is going to die. Let's flip the page here. During this time, uh, Constantine learned and observed a great deal from Diocletian. Uh, for example, he fought on a number of campaigns with him where he learned a good deal about fighting and leading armies. Uh, you know, Diocletian spent a good deal of time fighting the Persians and other uh, enemies who emphasized uh, open field cavalry and missile tactics. Right? The Persians are, uh, because of the wide open spaces out in the east, uh, their armies tend to be a little more cavalry heavy, a little more missile heavy, which is going to help Constantine in uh, not just, you know, he learns how to fight the Persians, so when he's emperor himself, he can 
he knows what's going on, but as well, there are other enemies which uh, Constantine is going to fight later on who use similar military tactics. And learning this, uh, fighting the Persians at an early age is going to help him transfer those to other situations in the future. Constantine also would have observed Diocletian's reforms of the imperial court and possibly developed a desire to maintain them when he became emperor because he doesn't, Constantine doesn't, the, the imperial reforms, uh, the, like the, the court protocols, which we talked about in the last episode, Constantine doesn't change those. So I, one might assume that he took a liking to them at the very least, or that he tolerated them. He probably also realized during this time the great importance of the Eastern Empire. And this is perhaps why uh, he moved the Roman capital from the city of Rome itself to Constantinople in the east. Uh, more on that later. Now, however, possibly the most important thing that Constantine would have observed during his time in the eastern court was Christianity and its persecution under Diocletian. As we said uh, in the last episode, Diocletian oversaw one of the most brutal and most widespread, well, actually the most brutal and the most widespread, persecution of Christians the Roman Empire had ever carried out. Now, Constantine, hanging around Diocletian all the time, then would have seen a number of Christians executed for their faith. Now, Constantine was apparently greatly impressed by the zeal with which the Christians stood their ground against their persecutors. He seemed to think that this religion must have had some serious value uh, to it because uh, people, its adherents were w willing to suffer such terrible deaths in its name. They would not uh, uh, give up their faith even in the face of uh, terrible tortures and deaths. Now, this may be difficult for a lot of modern people to understand because contemporary uh, Western society views religion as fairy tales and religious people as backwards. But for most of human history, religion was treated with an immense degree of seriousness. And people wholeheartedly believed these things. It wasn't, you know, political or or they did it because they thought it gave them some sort of social advantage. No, they did it, they did it because they really authentically believed these things. And the manner in which people of certain religious groups behaved left lasting impressions on those who observed them. Constantine's time in the East would come to an end when Diocletian abdicated the imperial throne in 305. More details on that in our first episode. You can go back and listen to episode one, which is called Emperor Superfly. If you listen to the whole episode, you'll understand why it has that title. Now, although Diocletian became fond of Constantine during his time in the imperial court, Constantine was passed over for any imperial promotions in the East. And he ended up having to flee for his life, actually, when Diocletian abdicated because people were out to get him. And so he fled back west and reunited with his father, Constantius. Again, Constantius had been the Caesar in the East, but after the series of abdications, Constantius was actually promoted to Augustus. And so Constantine joined his father, uh, who was planning a campaign uh, up in Britain to push the Picts back across the, the uh, Hadrian's Wall up in the north. Now the Picts, just for those of you who don't know, were a Celtic barbarian group uh, similar to the myriad of Celtic barbarians who, which populated Europe during the time before the Romans uh, expanded their empire. The Celts were in Gaul. There were uh, Celtic-type groups in Spain. There are even some in what we would now term northern Italy. 
Uh, and so now the Picts are one of the few remaining uh, Celtic barbarian groups uh, which are independent, not uh, ruled by another group. And they are, the, the, the Picts live in what is now Scotland, and so you could say, and it's very likely true, that modern Scottish people are descendants of these, uh, you'd call them Pictish groups. And there, there was this real issue because the Romans never managed to conquer Scotland, uh, partly because of the, the Picts were very fierce warriors, uh, formidable opponents, and there wasn't a whole lot of value up in Scotland. It's like it's a bunch of sheep up there. And you know the Romans kind of figured, is it really worth us spending a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money uh, to go take over a new land that's, that's not really very profitable? Um, but regardless, they had to deal with a lot of Pictish raids from uh, the land of the Picts into the Roman Empire. And so over the years, the Romans built several walls to try to keep the Picts out, most notably uh, Hadrian's Wall, but uh, this was not always supremely effective, as we can see here. The Picts are coming across. They need to lead a campaign to push them back. Now, the issue then becomes that Constantius, again, the father of Constantine, died shortly after the campaign began in July of 306 near the town of York. Uh, what ended up happening was, instead of calling off the campaign, because there's a roving band of picks up there, someone needs to get rid of them, Constantine takes the command of his father's army. So now he's leading his, the, the army after his father's death. And though the campaign is short, Constantine did win the admiration of many of the men in his army, and they actually proclaimed Constantine the new Augustus in the West after, obviously, his father had died. His father had been the Augustus, so his army, now admiring this young up-and-coming general, decides, hey, this guy would be a good new Augustus. Now, this doesn't officially mean that Constantine is the uh, new Augustus in the West because he would need uh, another, he would need the other Augustus to officially recognize him, but it never hurts to have the backing of an army. Remember, uh, there was a whole series of emperors called the Barracks Emperors, who were generals who rose to the imperial throne due to outsized uh, support from the military. And so, you know, so long as the, the, as the Praetorian Guard isn't lurking around your quarters, you're probably uh, in decent shape. Though Constantine won the support of much of the West, he still, like I said, needs approval from his Eastern colleague, Galerius, so that his uh, uh, title of Augustus would be official. However, when Galerius first heard of the death of Constantius and the subsequent rise of Constantine, he was not a happy camper. Apparently, Galerius, is, uh, advised, Galerius actually wanted to like go after Constantine and like lead an army and try to take him out. Um, but his... Galerius's advisors uh, reminded him that it might not be a good idea to to start beef with a rising star out there in the West. And of course, you know, civil wars are never good when you have a lot of external threats to begin with. So Galerius and Constantine decided to compromise, and Galerius would recognize Constantine as Caesar in the West, but not as Augustus. Constantine, probably knowing that this would only be a temporary matter and that he would resolve issues for himself later, agreed to the setup, possibly, you know, just need some time to settle things and get organized before he makes his next, you know, move for power. During this respite, Constantine, in a different power move, 
ditched his first wife to marry Fausta, who was the daughter of the former emperor, Emperor Emeritus Maximian. You remember him before he abdicated when he was the Augustus in the West, when Diocletian abdicated and Maximian uh, stepped down with when Diocletian uh, stepped down. However, Maximian decided to come out of retirement when he and his son Maxentius, so Maximian is the father, Maxentius is the son, uh, they both decided to challenge Constantine for control of the Western Empire. And this created a split in the Western Empire. Gaul and Britain ended up siding with Constantine. Italy, Spain, and North Africa sided with the two Maxes. Now, I'll just give you a brief note so that we can we know what happens to both Maximian, again, who is the father, and Maxentius, who is the son. So Maximian, as I said, retired his imperial post along with Diocletian. However, he quickly became dissatisfied with the new tetrarchy in retirement because he was under the assumption that his son Maxentius would then get a promotion to an imperial office. However, he was passed over for a man named Severus. This led Maxentius to lead a rebellion against, uh, against Severus, which he succeeded in doing. Now, Galerius, ruling from the east, uh, sent a message to Severus saying, put an army together and put this rebellion down. Get your house in order. However, many of the men in Severus's army had previously fought under Maximian, and therefore had sympathies to Maximian and, by association, Maxentius. And so many of the men in Severus's army defected to support Maxentius, which basically ended Severus's claims on imperial power. And so it was at this point that Constantine agreed to marry Fausta as a temporary respite before pursuing further ambitions and kind of, you know, Maxentius, although he is not officially recognized as a power in the West, practically speaking, is still a rival to him, so probably best to have a diplomatic marriage to kind of settle the waters for a little while until it's time to make the next move. Now, a series of disputes between father and son found Maximian banished from his son's court. And again, not official court, but... Regardless, Maximian was kicked out by his son, Maxentius, and he ends up fleeing, ironically, to the court of Constantine. And apparently, Maximian was also discontent in the court of Constantine, to the point where in 310, Maximian actually leads a rebellion against Constantine while Constantine is out fighting the Franks. The Franks are a group of Germanic barbarians originating from uh, roughly what we would call today Belgium and the Netherlands. So that would be kind of, you know, at the north uh, eastern border of Gaul is where Constantine is. And uh, Maximian is somewhere around uh, central, east central France at this point in time when he starts this rebellion. So... Then uh, Constantine then quickly turns around, kind of calls off that campaign for a moment to put down the rebellious Maximian, and he chases him down to the city of Massalia, which today is the city of Marseille, which is in uh, southeastern France. And Constantine at Massalia defeats Maximian. Now, he's nice enough to spare Maximian's life, but he was apparently 
<laughs> Maximian is apparently encouraged to commit suicide. So it's like, oh, Max, you know, we're not going to kill you. Uh, but if you killed yourself, uh, I don't think anyone would, would shed any tears, you know? And ironically, Maximian is later found, uh, hang, was found, and he apparently hanged himself, which was a presumed suicide. However, with Roman emperors, you can never rule out assassination by their own bodyguards. Regardless, in 311, April 311, Galerius died, uh, apparently of some, some nasty, like, bowel uh, problems, some, something uh, really gross about, like, pustules. It, seem, it seems like he may have had, like, colon cancer or something. Uh, uh, either way, this left Licinius ruling in the Balkans, and a new guy whose name was Maximin Dia, so there's, there's way too many Maxes in here, but Maximin Dia was ruling in Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. And then you have Constantius in the West. So you have Licinius in the Balkans, so Balkans and Greece. You have Maximian, or sorry, Maximin Dia ruling in the rest of the East, and Constantine is the only official person recognized in the West. Now, Maxentius still also holds significant power in the West, but he is a usurper and his status is not officially recognized, although practically speaking, obviously he's still around. Now, with the ambitions of both Constantine and Maxentius and their close proximity to each other, conflict was only a matter of time. You know, this is kind of a, this town ain't big enough for the two of us kind of deal. And almost immediately, Constantine began to prepare to uh, attack Maxentius in the fall of 311. So you kind of prep during the fall and the winter, and the spring is when the campaigning season starts because it's not cold and snowy and so on and so forth. So in the spring of 312, Constantine began his campaign in Italy. Now, though Maxentius had many quality troops and fine generals, and even the backing of the Praetorian Guard, which is a little unusual for the... And I'm exaggerating that a little bit. The Praetorian Guard, the Praetorian Guard didn't kill all of the emperor. But there, there, you know, there have been plenty of instances where they were, you know, seemed to have their own interest in mind, shall we say. Uh, but despite all of this, Constantine cut through the Italian defenses like a hot knife through butter. Uh, Maxentius actually spent most of that year waiting in Rome. He was kind of held up in Rome as that, that was like his, his last defense. And it's not a terrible you know, strategy. He's got high-quality troops out as uh, various defenses throughout, throughout Italy with generals who he trusts. And again, the Praetorian Guard is backing him. You know, some people might say, well, shouldn't Maxentius have been out uh, uh, from the very beginning taking on Constantine? Eh, possibly, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But finally, in October of 312, uh, uh, Maxentius decides to go out and meet Constantine at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, obviously the famous Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Now, as the battle approached, Constantine had a vision that would change the course of human history. Now, the veracity of this vision and Constantine's conversion to Christianity is uh, challenged, historically speaking. Uh, I will... I have decided to address this in a future episode. Uh, the, our, our next episode in this series is going to be really dedicated to Constantine and his relationship and conversion and so on and so forth with Christianity. 
Now, according to Eusebius, the day of the battle, Constantine looked up to the sky and saw the chai row in the sky. So these are the two, the two uh, first letters in the word Christos in Greek. Uh, so if you've ever, you've probably seen this symbol before, where it looks like the letter P and the letter X, like written over each other. Like you write the letter P and then over it you write the letter X, and that is the chai row, and that'll that becomes a very important symbol moving forward. And then he also saw the uh, looks up in the sky. He sees the chiro, and he also sees the words "in hoc signo vinces," which in Latin translates to "in this sign you will conquer." Um, Constantine is struck with amazement and had all of his soldiers paint the chiro symbol on their shields before the battle as a sign to show that they were you know, uh, God's favor was with them and. Constantine's army goes out that day and won, wins a clear victory, cutting down Maxentius's men as they routed across the bridge. Right, it's obviously it's the bridge, and basically what happens is Con uh, Constantine is really on a roll at this point, and he's just blown through, as I said, all of the Italian defenses. And it's like, well, what makes you think he's not going to blow through this last bit of defense? And uh, what ended up happening was the uh, army of Maxentius ends up fleeing across. This, this Milvian bridge, which is kind of, uh, not too far from Rome, and all of his men get bunched up on this bridge, and Constantine's men come from right up from behind and, and cut them down, and uh, Maxentius apparently, uh, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, fell off the bridge and drowned at the river. I could be wrong about that, but I, I feel like I remember reading that when I was prepping for this. So Maxentius was defeated, and Constantine is the sole ruler in the West. And, and even though, as we said, Maxentius was not an official ruler, obviously he was a threat, now Constantine is the only official or non-official power that remains in the Western Roman Empire. Now, although Licinius technically held claim to the lands that Constantine won over, as we said, Maxentius... Um, controlled Italy and Spain and North Africa, uh, Licinius has no practical control over it, even though in, in theory and perhaps legally speaking he does. Uh, practically speaking, Constantine is, is really the only one who's calling the shots there. Although Constantine only controlled half the empire, I think this is a good place for us to break before discussing his further conquests. Constantine had, at this point, successfully repelled all challengers to his authority in the West, and had converted to a new religion, which is going to give him a good deal of momentum going forwards, onward and upward from here. So if you have gotten to this point in the show, uh, if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure to click the like button, click subscribe, Hit the notification bell so that you don't miss any episodes. If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We only accept five-star reviews. Four-star reviews are not tolerated. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, please support. continue supporting us on Spotify. If you're listening to on, us on SoundCloud, thank you as well. Be sure to keep up. Um, and we will see you all next time.